Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool and I'm joined with Strawman's Andrew Page. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm very well, Scott. Yourself? Mate, I'm exceptionally well for this wonderful Sunday. As we inch desperately closer, we claw our way closer to some sort of lockdown restriction. Uh, Wineback, rollback, and we're in uh, Sydney and surrounds, of course. If you are not in lockdown, then good on you. Go and enjoy life. Well, let us live vicariously through you because... Uh, these walls, mate, uh, they're not getting any further away, are they? Let's be honest. <laughs> they're closing in very fast. <laughs> they really, really are. But we'll do our best to uh, make it fun. Whether you're in lockdown or not, uh, hopefully you listen to this while maybe you're uh, doing some exercise around the town or, or just getting out in the what's hopefully sunshine where you are. Hopefully it will be for us. Um, of course, the theatre of the mind. We are recording this on Thursday morning. But uh, hopefully by Sunday, things are good and you are enjoying yourself. We are, I can, I can, see, I can see a light at the end of the tunnel, mate. Are you, are you feeling optimistic? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the least optimistic yes I think I've ever heard, mate. But thank you for trying. I, I think I, the part of me, kind of like, hope has just died inside me in a lot of ways. So, <laughs> I don't know. It'd be nice. I'll, I'll welcome it when it comes, but, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. They say, uh, they say what is happiness is reality divided by expectations. So you keep yes. your expectations low, mate, which is which is a smart thing to do. Good um, All right, let's, let's get on with the podcast. So, Awesome questions. Thank you very much to those who've sent questions and comments. We get through as many as we reasonably can, um, and we'll we'll try and do our best to uh, keep it fun and entertaining, and uh, and give you some some uh, you know just some some thoughts and some insights into how we're thinking about some of the things you're asking about. Mate, first question comes from Patrick. He says, "Hi Scott and Andrew, really appreciating all the commentary via the podcast and enjoyed the first episode of The Good Oil. Thank you, Patrick. Have I mentioned The Good Oil? I probably have. I'm not going to do it again. Looking forward to listening more." I like the general criteria you use to evaluate companies, which I believe includes evaluating the management team. However, this is one area I feel challenged to assess. So I'm curious about any general advice for assessing companies' management as a regular punter. Mm. Thanks, Patrick. Um, I'm going to, speaking of pulling back the curtain, I'm going I'm to tell you, Patrick, there's not that much difference between the regular punter and people like Andrew who get paid to do this, quite honestly. Into, there's, no, there's no magic kind of uh, feature or function we get to access that somehow tells us more about management. Uh, occasionally, we talk to company management. That can be useful. But um, I, I'm, I'm a bit... I'm a bit. I'm still 50-50 on talking to management, Andrew. I've got to say, mm. I, we all think it's supposed to be exciting, interesting, and it's a nice you know, marketing tool if we can say, oh, we talk to management all the time. These people aren't there because they're really, really good at being honest. <laughs> <laughs> they're there, hopefully some operational excellence, but also because, well, they're there, their job is to go and sell the company's share price, right? Like when you meet with management, how often do you come away going, gee, I hate that company more than I used to? You're, you're um, almost always charmed or yeah. you feel more informed but in the way they want it. And they're not even necessarily trying to mislead you. They're there saying, mate, I think I'm doing a good job and let me tell you about how great this company is. Mm. You're here going, oh, that's good. I, you know, the number of times that I have to tell the guys at work, not because I'm a genius, by the way, just because I'm not doing the review, when they say, oh, this will happen next year. Like, no, no, we need to say company said, the company manager said this will happen. We, mm. we, kind, of, we kind of, once once it's said, once in the public domain, we all tend to kind of go, oh, well, that's what's going to happen then. Mm. Uh, forgetting maybe that uh, these, these businesses aren't anymore, uh, you know, don't, don't possess any more or, or foresight, particularly out, you know, 6, 12, 18 months than we do. Mm. How do you think about evaluating management, mate, from, from an outsider's perspective? It, again, it's one of these things so critically important, so hard Isn't to it? do. 
Um, <laughs> That's right. There's the yeah, usual both. ones, which I think are pretty good. Like people always say it's nice to have skin in the game. So yep. when the, the CEO and senior management team have, have a lot of shares in a company, they, yep. they, they're going to be more inclined to think about shareholders because they're shareholders. Yeah, true. Um, I think there are a lot of wrinkles on that though. Like, you know, th- there's difference between yeah. just being granted shares yeah, and paying for shares out true. of your own after-tax income, yeah, which is psychologically, yeah. it shouldn't be, but it, it right. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And someone, and when you see a manager that holds a, a, a pretty <laughs> yeah. big chunk of shares, they've bought it themselves with yeah. money, with their own money, and and yeah. they've they've been buying uh, recently. I think that's a wonderful sign. There's an old saying that that management um, sell for many reasons, but they buy only for one. Mm-hmm. which I've always really liked because, yeah, again, people can freak out when managers sell some shares and sometimes it's a warning sign, but often it's not. But but really, if you're, there's no gun to their head here. You know? <laughs> yeah. They don't have to do it. If they're, I think yeah. people, CEOs that are acquiring their own shares, I think that's a, that's a really nice thing to look for. I also can I, think can I jump into that one quickly though, mate? Yeah. I, I think even that is breaking down because yeah, I think management yeah. know that. We've seen, not mm. recently actually, I just can't remember seeing it recently, but you know the, the, the phrase window dressing? Yeah. Um, you know, where, where where you say, oh, the whole board's bought shares in the company after some bad news. It's like, no, they went and bought like 10 grand's worth each. Yes. And, you know, not, and for, look, a lot of people yes. listening, 10 grand's a lot of money, right? But if you're a highly paid executive or director, um, well, yeah, so I, 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 I'm always inclined to say, you know, management itself for many reasons, but buy for only two and only one of those is legitimate. <laughs> because, you know, if you're, if you're going to put thousands of thousands, tens of thousands regularly into buying your own company shares, um, or even if you're granted them, but they become a, a large part of your personal wealth, then that's one thing, right? If you're, I just want, I just want to make that. It's, it's, it feels like a semantic distinction, but I actually don't think it is because it is used often to mislead or, or it's designed to say, look, look how, look how confident management and the board are. They've all bought shares. Mm. Well, yeah, they kind of used petty cash to buy the shares. It's not quite the same. So, you know, just, just a pedantic difference I want to throw because I just want, to, if people are looking for that and they say, oh, so and so bought shares, just, just check how many they've bought, check how much money they put to work to do it. Oh, 100 percent. It's a great, great point. Um, it's got it's got to be a material amount. It's got it's got to be enough that it hurts. You know, yeah, they, exactly. It's got to be enough that they really want this thing to <laughs> succeed. Um, I love it. That's great. Yeah, so, so definitely. I, I think the remuneration yeah, yeah. report's very interesting to look at as well. It's, mm-hmm. You you'll, you won't find more dry and boring reading, but <laughs> yeah, right. um, uh, you know, incentives matter. Show me yeah. show me the incentive, and I'll show you the outcome, as Charlie uh-huh. Munger said. Charlie so Munger, I think yeah. that's also worth looking at. I think it's just actually you'll get a lot of value from just just being an, a long-term follower of a company because good and bad results yeah. will come out. Management will give commentary around that and then next period you'll get another yeah. chance. And those that are – the really great managers are mm. very candid. Um, yes. They're, 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 they're not big promises. They sort of under-promise, over-deliver. You'll get a mm. sense of that just by hearing what would you say in the previous – what did you say previously versus what happened? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, how do, and, you know, people who are always – particularly people who are always blaming other mm-hmm. things and, mm-hmm. oh, it wasn't this fault and that, no, but this is going to be great. I know we said this, but next time it's going to be great. Just <laughs> It's for no, me, part, you know, yeah, for me yeah. 50 times, shame on yeah. me, you know, after after a point. So I think so I think that is, is um, also really important. What else am I missing? Um, I actually I value management meetings, but I have okay. I have to work very hard to try and to not be to not be carried away because they are all excellent mm. communicators. And as you say, I am almost in, whatever I think yeah. about a company after hearing them talk, I almost invariably feel a bit better about them. Because, totally, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is what they know, want. <laughs> so I, I think I think it's it, you you've got to watch yourself very mm. carefully there that you're mm. not wanting to have uh, your your um, 
you don't want to you don't you don't want to sort of suffer from confirmation bias. Like I think this, and I just I'm, yeah, I'm just yeah. here to get this guy to confirm this yeah. belief that I have, no matter how That's erroneous right. it is. <laughs> right. Um, well, yeah, they're going to so, answer your questions nicely. They're going to smile. They're going to explain why the bad news is bad. They're going to explain why the good news is good. They're going to explain what they're trying to do moving forward. And these, as I said, these people aren't trying to mislead you necessarily. Some absolutely are. Let's be clear. Mm. But others are like, you know, it's like everything. Is it? Uh, yeah. How beautiful is your child? Oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you what he did the other day and, and how great he is, how great my wife is, and how wonderful my house is. It, it's all endowment effect, right? It, it, yeah. the, these, it can absolutely be, it can absolutely be made up. But a lot of it is just, this is what we're trying to do. This is the opportunity we see. These are the, the goals we're trying to kick. And if you walk in there, particularly if you're already a shareholder or you already like the company and you want more information, Effectively, even if you don't know it, you're pretty much asking for, for confirmation bias, right? And that's yeah. really, really, really hard because we're just inclined to want to believe. Again, this, mm. the x thing I mentioned on, on Friday. We, we want to believe. We actually walk in there wanting to believe. And I think that's a really important thing to remember as we're trying to, yeah, trying to invest here. Um, you, I'll add some thoughts. Oh, go on, please. Yeah. I just, just one final no, thing please. I just remembered as you were saying. One, one thing mm. that I've learned to pay a lot of attention to is, 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 is the actual language itself. I've always found <laughs> yeah, that right. the really great... CEOs speak. It, 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 there's just not much jargon. We do this, oh, that's right? Yeah, right. You know, and it's it's sort of like they yeah. just cut okay. through. This is the they get the core yeah. of the business. You know, <laughs> exactly. the more the exactly. more management is focused on <laughs> like little yeah. things, and there's just yeah, lots yeah, of yeah. heavy jargon around that. Mm-hmm. And they're using the latest buzzwords. For me, that just sort of it just it's it's yeah, struck. It's I don't know if this is anecdotal like or, or anything, but but yeah. it just it turns out that these companies and they. The more complicated it is, like, we just have a tendency <laughs> yeah, to believe the better right. something therefore that's must right. be. But yeah, that's also true. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. What's his uh, Babcor CEO Daryl? I've forgotten his last Abotomy. name. Yes, and anyway, we just say uh, when he talks about uh, the, the retail offerings mm-hmm. um, through. Just uh, we we sell the. What does he say? It's like the the fluff and sparkle <laughs> or something <laughs> like, you know, and is it these yeah. guys who have just been on the front line, yeah. they get exactly what it is. This yeah, is what yeah, we're yeah. trying to do. And this is what matters in this mm-hmm. business. And this is what we're, what, what we're focused on. You know, I just, I think, mm. I think that is really, really great. Um, and I'm usually, I think one opportunity you get to, to really get an insight into a CEO's thinking is, is through things like acquisitions. Um, they're really telling, I find it's just sort of like, Anyone can make the company bigger by buying something else, but those that have got a really clear vision and, and um, uh, reason for buying a particular company, other than just the outright increase in size and, and, and understanding how that is valued and what 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 opportunities that unlock, I think that's mm-hmm. also very interesting too because it shows you a bit more of their long-term strategic thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 pretty nuanced stuff. What do you think? Yeah, I I agree. It's a really difficult one. And there, there is so there's no there's no shortcut, right? And as I said, on one hand, I'm inclined. We all want to think we're the people who know the, the, the right answers, right? So, so I, I I look at management this way. Again, I've just said we're all all of us, including Andrew and I, we're all prone to those same psychological biases of endowment effect and, and confirmation bias, and, and just people like people, right? We want to like people, mm. and so there's all that stuff that goes in it. So a few things I, I, I look at. The first is just frankly tenure and results. Right, so mm. just have have they been around for a while? How have they done? That that's the starting point. Though I will say, by the way, I think a lot of managers are massively overvalued and over appreciated because they were in the right place at the right time. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bag any individual managers. And I don't think necessarily they're bad managers, but if you've got an industry, you mentioned Buffett's quite about you know a management with a reputation for brilliance and an economic an industry with a reputation for for good economics or bad economics. If it's the reverse, right? 
if you've got a, if you've got a, manage, a manager who's terrible in an industry that's wonderful, it's really hard to screw that up. Yeah, it is really hard to screw that up. So uh, I will give one example as an industry, but telecommunications over the last well, probably from what two thousand to two thousand and twelve or thirteen. Like you could, you couldn't screw that up. Like it just, you just could not screw that up. Mm. Um, you know, cable was being laid. People were upgrading phones. Three uh, G was coming. Four G was coming. Eventually, five G. You know, and and if you if you've only run one company and it happens to be in a really great industry, then separating out skill and luck is just and just circumstance is just stupidly difficult. So yeah. track record matters, but ideally in more than one organisation and preferably in more than one industry. Although that's getting rarer over time. Uh, so there's that. Um, Candor is huge for me as you've already mentioned Ram I, I love a, a manager who will actually just call a spade a bloody shovel mm. and there are very mm. few of them it's why I mentioned on Friday I really I really value Rosalind Kogan drink um, I own shares again I have to say that separately because it's a new podcast um because uh, you just you know he he's like well we're just trying to do the right things and yeah not my opinion that matters and we're just trying to follow you know th- there's no there's no grandiose you know grandstanding here he's not saying well actually it turns out I'm the best guy in the world and I had all these wonderful great insights and I built the business and you're welcome and it's all thanks to me um, so candor is super important and humility right so add those two together someone will tell you when stuff's bad um, they won't try to sugarcoat it. They say okay well this this this, this sucks and by the way it's super rare right because mm. no one wants to be the guy who gets fired by the board for saying yeah I screwed up. So it's also the incentives that the board places, not just management, by the way. So the company culture, including the board, is as valuable, as important than just the yeah. manager themselves. Yeah. Um, next thing for me, mate, is ownership. You mentioned already. Uh, so that, that's important if you own a decent chunk of shares. Ideally, if you're buying, but at the very least, if, if, if you didn't buy a single share, but they're now worth, I don't know, say $10 million worth of shares in the company and you've got them, uh, that's going to focus them on. So you know, I'd rather them have bought them themselves. But if, if, if the failure of the company costs them millions of dollars, you hope they're going to be paying some decent attention. Mm. Um, a management that gives their staff time and room to talk as well. Mm. Um, I, I'm a big, big, big fan. Uh, I've said before, Mark Fitzgibbon, who runs NIB, one of my favourite CEOs, one of the most underrated CEOs on the ASX because NIB is not a sexy company. If it was a biotech or a miner or something, he'd be, he'd be in lights. Um, really, really smart guy. Really, again, humble guy. He gives his team heaps of room in the presentations to talk. It's like, hey, I'm here, but I'm going to turn over to my people and they're going to do the job. Again, you get a sense of they're building a business worth worth following. Um, lastly, I think, uh, founder owners, which is not about the managers themselves, but just their role. If they if they built a business, you, you're damn sure they care. And they might mm. still screw it up and they might still make mistakes. And arguably, Steve Jobs was kicked out of Apple for the right reasons back in the day and then learned some things and came back a better, a better manager. Um, so they're not, they're not perfect necessarily, but um, you just you, you know it's their baby, it's their idea. They cared deeply about the company, almost as an extension of themselves. That mm. can that can make them egotistical, by the way. That can also make them prone to other mistakes. Mm. But at least you know they care, and you can't question that among anything else. Um, so they're probably the things I would look at, mate. Um, yep. You'll notice none of those, other than kind of track record, is, is financial metrics. Um, uh, you know, generally speaking, you're looking at the, for the qualitative factors. Um, I personally try to be really careful of people I like for exactly the reason I just talked about is mm. if someone connects with you uh, and you connect with them, you're just more likely to like them and that's fine. And if you have got a good BS detector, that can actually be super useful, right? Mm. Um, the problem is we all think we're good people and we all think people like us are good people because we, you know, it's it's natural instinct, right? I can say, yeah, yeah, but I'm actually the one who's right. And Andrew says, no, I'm actually the one who's right. And listeners say, yeah, we're the ones who are right. Mm. Uh, so it's really, really, really hard. So ideally track record, candor, honesty and ownership are probably things I'd be looking for. Yep. Anything else on that one, mate? No, I think that's covered it. Um, another question. Um, so, <laughs> this one's a it, it's a it's a longish one. 
Um, and I think I have an answer, mate, but let me let me run through it because it's a it's an interesting question from Bernard. Bernard says, uh, "Hi, Scott. I love the show. I've been listening since uh, since Ram versus Presidente, Scott, one point zero. Well, back, way back in the day. Thank you, Bernard. I'm wondering if I'm being unreasonable. Read two financial services that I use. I'll name them for you, but you can leave them out if you wish. I will leave them out just because it saves me getting sued. Um, I use a super platform to manage my own super portfolio, he says, and a stockbroker to manage my portfolio outside super. Neither service is a great fit for me, but they're good enough. Both services seem to make decisions, read their offerings to suit my needs, and yet they both seem to refuse to give me an adequate reason for their decisions. I feel like they're fobbing me off. I'm aware that I may be expecting too much, and I would appreciate your views and tangents, he says. We'll do our best. <laughs> Firstly, my, my, my uh, platform has a limit on overseas shares only being able to be a maximum of 75% of an Australian superannuation portfolio. I find this unreasonable because I could possibly have 100% overseas exposure by only, only by buying internationally focused Australian stocks and or have 100% local exposure through banks. So why the arbitrary percentage? The broker, uh, sorry, the platform says they have fiduciary reasons for this, but don't explain what those reasons are. As an aside, the limit was only 50% of overseas stocks until very recently. My gripe is the seemingly arbitrary rule, but more importantly, the lack of a detailed explanation. Yes, I have tried many times to get a detailed explanation. My second gripe, he says, along the same lines is with my broker. I've got a software program I use to analyze my portfolio and it makes use of a thing called OFX or Open Financial Exchange. The problem is that Saxo don't, not the broker, we have just that Saxo, don't use <laughs> OFX. I asked them if they planned to do so and they said no. I asked them why and they gave me the same reply. We don't plan to do so. I said, I understand that, but why don't you? We have no plans, was the reply. Then after my third try getting an answer, they said it's a business decision. Ah, no kidding, Sherlock, he says. He actually said no kidding. I didn't have to clean that one up. It's a business and they make a decision, but I want to know why. As yet, no answer, says Bernard. Is it unreasonable for me in both cases to expect them to tell me why they don't or do offer things? Keep all your pods going as the Market Weekly Wrap provides a great summary of three recent events and the Q&A always gives me something new to learn. Thanks, Bernard. You guys really do democratise investing information. I can't believe you give this important info away for free, he says, and choose to demystify and call BS on so much of what the financial world passes off as crucial information, in air quotes, which is often jargon filled with noise. Full on from Bernard. Um, thank you, Bernard, for the, for the kind words at the end. Yeah, okay, we, 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 let's, not, let's not give it away for free. Let's double our, cost, our price instead, Andrew. There you go, double, fix that Double problem. zero, done. Double, Oh, there is that. Okay. Um, <laughs> there you go. Mate, we, we're, thanks, Bernard. We are, we're doing it because we love it. And we're doing it because we want to help people. So um, that you know what? That doesn't necessarily pay cash dividends. It, it pays some um, It pays some karmic dividends, hopefully. It just makes us feel good. And look, you know, if people like us, maybe they'll try our businesses. But um, we're happy just to, to help some people out. All right, mate. What do you reckon? Is Bernard, I mean, do businesses make private business decisions for their own reasons? Should, it, should a consumer be able to sort of say, dude, kind of, can at least explain to me what's going on? Or is Bernard getting a little bit too... Is he expecting too much from these companies? Well, there's definitely a spectrum there. I mean, there's a lot of things that companies don't want to disclose for strategic reasons, competitive yeah. reasons. So that's, you know, and then they're not answerable to you as, as a customer in, in that regard, yeah. unfortunately. Um, but there are other things that are very reasonable. So it, it comes back to the reasonableness of the question. And yeah. I guess it also, it, it, it's, it's not so much about... 
I mean, you know, what am I trying to say? You know what it's like in any large organisation, mm-hmm. mate. The person mm-hmm. answering these emails is not the person who's making the decisions and there could be 15 people mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. them and the person who has and, and even they themselves probably don't know. Mm-hmm. So they could have to fight some huge big internal battle to get nowhere themselves to answer a, a, what, you know, is a small question for them in their overall what business activities is not going to make any difference to the bottom line. So there's a, there is just the pragmatic, practical reality of, of the situation as well. Um, unfortunately, all you can do is if you find that you're not getting, if you don't like the current offering and you're not getting a satisfactory answer, why? Then, then you're mm, the mm. only thing you can do as a consumer is vote with your wallet and take your business elsewhere. That's true, um, and, and 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 that's perfectly fine. But mm, you know, mm. um, it, it's a question of whether the thing that has sent you away will be mm. remedied anywhere else. For someone who's been between all the major telcos, I can tell you that they all suck. <laughs> so, uh, you know, sometimes it can be in, in the fry, out of the frying pan into yeah. the fire. But, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're not unreasonable questions, but, you know, they're, yeah. they're, not, they're not always going to disclose the real reason and, and um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it's just unfortunate, but it's how it is. Yeah. I think that's right. I, and read, but the reason I the reason I asked the question, look, I, I agree with Andrew, and the reason we asked it for the podcast is there are some financial kind of linkages and implications. I do want to kind of touch on, on a couple of those. Um, the the overseas uh, exposure is, uh, I, plenty, like heaps of people do it. Superannuation industry super funds do it as well. Uh, Australian super, I know, are, I think it's an eighty percent limit. Even then, they limit you to certain companies within the ASX and that kind of stuff. It's a, it, it it tends to be a yeah. combination of things. Um, I don't really know in their particular this particular platform. This is not Australian Super. This is a, this is a different uh, private platform provider. I don't know in their particular circumstances, but generally speaking, it can be also the fact that they're trading these things out of hours, and they may also be lumping up some of these decisions and, and, and trades. And if you need to liquidate the portfolio and that kind of stuff, they're going to manage that. Um, and it may when they say fiduciary, it may be on your behalf, or actually maybe on the business's behalf, just to make sure that they're not caught up in anything. We saw a whole lot of problems with um, uh, back in the GameStop uh, kind of you know uh, Reddit, Wall Street bets days. Um, you know, brokers getting caught short, platforms getting caught short, trying to execute transactions and that kind of stuff. So I, I can't speak for them. It may have something to do with that. Um, the the Open Financial Exchange, I'm not sure either, mate. Um, here's the thing. I I'm going to say. Uh, Kindly, nicely, hopefully. Uh, I don't think it's reasonable to expect they're going to answer your question. Um, they may choose to, they may want to, it may be good customer service. I try for the Motley Fool, for example, to answer people's questions, ask about things like our marketing, which don't, people don't love, or the service combinations with people, sometimes people don't love, or or people would choose things to be a certain way. And I try and explain the thinking behind the, the service. It doesn't always make people happy, by the way. Um, and so sometimes asking for an answer is not, it's really, it's really, you know, a code for I want you to do what I want you to do and I want you to say why, you know, if, you, if you're not going to do it, then you need to explain why. Um, sometimes I can explain that, sometimes I can't. People say, oh, I think you should do this instead. Okay, fine, but we're not going to for whatever reason. My, my guess is, honestly, mate, in the case of the Open Financial Exchange, it's just integration cost and tech time and effort and they probably just don't see the, the value in it. And either... In big organisations, the person answering the customer service queries, they're not going to send every one of these queries to the CEO for an answer. It's just, it's just not feasible inside their organisations. Um, if I don't like something that Comsec's doing or Telstra, Andy Penn's not going to explain to me strategically why they don't have a tower on my hill. Um, they're going to you know, say, well, business decisions and range and coverage. And it's just it's not feasible for them to have those answers and provide them. Um, and also too, frankly, they may, not, they may just simply figure that if they, if they say to you, yeah, we're not going to do it, sorry, because it's not worth it. <laughs> You're going to say, well, I'm a customer and I want it and you should do it. And they're going to say, well, and yeah, the honest answer is we could do it, but it just wouldn't be a payoff for us. It's not worth our, our time and hassle because no one else asked for it. You're the only, you're the second person in 18 months to ask for it or whatever. Um, and honestly, it might just be, you know, those sort of reasons. So when they say business decisions, it's obviously a euphemism for that often. Again, in this case, it may or may not be. Uh, but look, look, I think, you know, 
I am kind of inclined to say they don't owe you an answer. You may choose to go somewhere else as a result. Um, but I, if I asked Woolworths, what, you know, Senator Woolworths, Woolworths, why do you stock this rather than that? They would say, well, because sales are higher or lower or it's a business decision or whatever. I, I'm not sure that it's reasonable for shareholders to expect their business to spend a lot of time corresponding with individual customers to justify or explain individual business decisions. Really honestly, I hope that's, I hope that's reasonably respectfully said. Um, fair, fair to ask the question, by the way. Um, but do I want my businesses spending a lot of time giving detailed answers to people on why certain functionalities or features or rules are in place? I don't know. It's an open question. By the way, go, feel free to go somewhere else if they will explain the difference for you. you know, if you want to change brokers or platforms, ask them up front. Hey, what are the rules and why are those rules in place? And if they do or don't answer it, then you can obviously make your decisions accordingly. But I, I don't... It doesn't strike me that the rules are super unreasonable and I don't know that I would demand an answer from someone or expect an answer and, and maybe judge them if they don't give me one. But maybe that's just me. Anything else on that, Ram? Uh, look, at the, it's like so many things. There's compromises. I'm sure you could pay a yeah, much right. higher... There are services out there that yes, provide yeah. for far more yeah. bespoke, uh, tailored kind of solutions. But that's a good at the point, same, actually. At yeah, the yeah. same time, they'll, they'll cost you a lot more. So a lot yeah. of these platforms are super cheap. And, yep. and part of the reason that they're super cheap is because they don't have to sort of deal one on one with so point. many, that's and really and so that's that's an that's that, that's another sort of reality. I, I, mm. I guess mm. is that you you can have what you want. You could set up a different structure and buy any yeah. kind of proportion of yeah. anything and any you know as 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 the mega rich do. They can set up a yeah. family office that's and right. just, exactly. you know and, you do, and you do want. it and do it that way. But yeah, but the compromise yeah. is it's just going to yeah. cost you a lot more. So that. That's so true, that, isn't it? That's, that's the decision you need to make. Do I want to spend a lot more to get this additional functionality or am I just happy to mm. be a bit limited where I otherwise would prefer it not to be uh, but, but pay a really low rate elsewhere, is, which is the net benefit overall? It's, it's, it's a personal question. Only you can answer it. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Now, let's go to another question, this time from Patrick as well. Another Patrick. Hi, uh, Scott and Andrew. I enjoyed your recent discussion about opportunities in a post-lockdown world and oh, discounted cash flow, getting algebraic. Even though I could follow the DCF hypothetical example from Andrew, I was hoping you could apply this to a real company. The reason is I couldn't find this information through a Google search of, say, DCF and Kogan. So I wasn't sure how to apply it. I'm hoping this added bit of detail will help listeners, including me, have a better grasp of how to value shares. Thanks, Patrick. Now, mate, I did reply to Patrick uh, personally. Just look, we probably can't run through a DCF on on a uh, on a podcast because by the time you do the maths and kind of carry the one and add the three and remain, you know, two decimal places, it gets really, really well. Frankly, boring, but it's stupidly hard to follow in terms of discounted cash flows. But what I thought we would just try and touch on a little bit is to kind of work through mentally the process of what we're trying to do. So I'm going to try and keep, give a bit of a kickoff to the broad concept. I'm going to try mm-hmm. and explain it and I'm going to get you to jump in and then correct me where I'm wrong and add detail where I get it wrong mm-hmm. and see how we go from there. Okay. So I'm going to say that a DCF, a discounted cash flow, is designed to allow someone who owns something. Now let's, let's talk about bank interest because it's just easier this way, right? To work out how much a something is worth allowing for two things. The first is the amount of cash you're going to get from this thing. And the second is what that's worth when you allow for the fact that time has value. In other words, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in five years' time, right? If you say to me, look, I'll give you a buck today. I say, great, thanks, Andrew. He say, oh, I'll give you a buck in five years' time. And you say, which one would you prefer? I'm like, well, 
I'd like it now, please. Humans just, and it makes logical sense, right? We want the money now. If we're going to have to wait for it, well, if you say to me, look, I'll give you a dollar now, but how much more would I have to give you if I, if I wait five years and give you something then? Mm. You'd have a higher number, right? You'd want more money then for the, frankly, to be paid to wait, both in terms of the fact that humans want stuff now, also the fact that if you give me a dollar now, I can invest that dollar and earn something with it making it worth more than a dollar in five years' time. So the combination of those things are what we call the time value of money. How have I gone so far? Perfect. No faults. All right. Now, I said I was going to use bank interest. I'm actually not going to because I'm going I'm to try and step this out in a couple of, in a couple of, uh, a couple of steps. I'm going to use a, a, a loan. You've told me that you're going you're gonna, to um, give me a dollar and you want that dollar back in five years' time. Mm-hmm. And so there's an end date, which makes my life easier because we get to terminal growth rates in a minute. But basically, you're saying, look, I, I'm going to give you a dollar now. I want the dollar back in five years, but I don't just want a dollar back. I want more than that dollar. And we're trying to work out between us, what's a fair amount to give you back? I get your dollar, so I get to use that. I get to invest that, spend it, do whatever I want with it. Uh, you've loaned me some money, but I, you want something back in the future. Now, banks do this all the time. It's called the interest rate. And to them, that's the time value of the money, right? Is saying, well, okay, well, you know, if you, want to, if you want to borrow money from me for the house, I want you to pay me two or two and a half percent a year for the privilege of, of borrowing that money. That's the time value of money to me as a bank. And so we know that's a reasonably easy one to do. So we have to pay them a dollar, $102.50 for every $100 we owe. Um, you know, effectively, if we had a one-year loan, you'd, you'd borrow 100, you pay back 10250 If it was over two years, you pay back 105 If it was three years, it'd be $107.50 and so on and so forth. Because you pay the principal back and you pay back the cost of borrowing that money over that period of time. And that's kind of what a DCF does. That's the first thing it does, is it says, how much cash am I going to get? So a bank says... 100 bucks now, I give out. I get 250 this year, next year, the year after, the year after that, and I get my 100 bucks back at the end of year five. So the total return is going to be well, $12.50 for the interest plus 100 bucks back. They get 112.50 plus the 100 in total, which is the 1250 of interest plus the $100 loan they made repaid in full. Is that fair so far, mate? Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, if I'm investing, I want some sort of return over that period of time. I want to see... A, a growth in the value of the asset. I'm not getting interest payments necessarily. I might get dividends, I may not. But I want to see that value grow over time because I want to make some sort of return. And I'm saying, well, I'm, I'm investing in a company. I'm not, I'm not, this is not the government here. This is not even a bank. The chance of me getting my money back are not 100%. There's something less than that because the shares could decline or the business could fail or I might just simply buy a, a, a bad company that doesn't, you know, took AGL or AMP that we talked about on Friday. Things can be tough, right? Businesses can go backwards. And so I want to be offered something more than just the standard interest rate. If I can get, I can get cash in the bank at, well, these days, nothing, or <laughs> 0.1%. If you want me to take more risk than if you want to give me more money than that, I want to take more risk than that. So if I'm going to invest in AMP, I want a higher rate of potential return because I want to allow for the fact that I want to get the cash in the bank rate plus something more than that for taking the risk that maybe the investment won't turn out too well. So I say, well, okay, I want a 10% return to invest in AMP. Bad example, right? Because it's going to go badly. But let's let's say company X. Um, so I want $110 for every 100 bucks I put up. I want $10 a year in terms of return over, over the next five years. I say, great, that's what I want. So I want a total 150 bucks at the end of that period of time. How much would I pay for that money now? And you can say, well, I'll, I want the return. And you do. But you could actually get something else with that money if you didn't invest in AMP. So the extra return you get is the time value you give up. And so I hope this is kind of making some degree of sense. But effectively, every year I have to wait, I'm going to pay a little bit less for that income. So I might pay 100 bucks to get $110 back at the end of the year. 
but I'm not going to pay 100 bucks to get $110 back in two years' time because that's two years' worth of interest that I'm giving up. If it's in five years' time, there's no way in the world I'm going to pay 100 bucks to get $110 back. And so you've got a discount, which is where the discount comes from, the cash flows you're getting out that period of time and say, well, $110 in five years' time might only be worth $80 to me now rather than $100 because I've got to wait five years to get that cash. Mm. Now, you add up all those amounts, and this gets, again, this is why the math gets difficult, but effectively, the further you go out, the less you want to pay or the higher return you want. Both those things are effectively the same thing, right? You either get more then or you pay less now to make that worthwhile, and that's the discount bit. So you add up all the cash flows, the $10 a year, 10 plus 10 plus 10 plus 10, 50, great. You're not going to pay that. You're going to pay something less than that because time has value. And so the longer you go out, the more of a discount you want and the less you should be prepared to pay. Help me out, mate. Improve that for me. <laughs> well, I, I would I would look at it this way. I would say that the DCF is a way of it, it. What it what it derives is what's called the intrinsic value or the fair value. It's a way of looking at value that's independent of the market. The, the practical reality is the shares are worth whatever the hell people are prepared to pay for them. <laughs> and that can be sensible or, or it can be not. It's right. usually sensible, but sometimes it, it it's mm-hmm. not. But the beauty in the DCF is it just it it disconnects you from that. And then it, it, it's, it forces you to look at the market as, as something to serve you, not to, in, not to inform you kind mm-hmm. of thing. So, yep. and, and that's what we do as investors. We try to mm-hmm. sort of independently say, this company is worth this much. And if, if Mr. Market's giving me an opportunity mm-hmm. to buy it at a lower rate, I'm going to get an even better return than, than, mm-hmm. I, than I expected. So that's, that's, that's why it, it's sort of important. The other thing I was going to say, just, just in regard to Patrick's question, I, I get what he's getting at in sort of okay, I, I think he gets the the overall premise of it mm-hmm. and and but how do you actually apply this is this is it's, it's one thing to sort of talk about the abstract but how do you actually get yeah. your hands dirty on this kind of stuff and a simple Google's <laughs> not always going to do it for you yeah, or if you did yeah, find a DCF result on Kogan it's just whatever someone else came up with yeah, whatever they happen yeah. to put in so I would say a really good starting point something like Kogan is just is go and look at the last year's annual report. Look mm. at how much money it's made. Like, just look, look. Keep it simple, right? Just look mm. at the top line. What are the what were they selling five years ago, four years ago, three years? What what's that sort of look like? What do you think that could be? And you, mm. here you can sort of say anything, but this is this is the where the art comes into it, right? <laughs> but you might sort of say, oh, listen, they've only got a very small percent of this very large and, and fast growing market. Yeah. I think they yeah. can make you. You can come up with a number that's pretty hard. And, and so far, we're only sort of dealing very high level still, just on the top mm. line. A little bit talked about the dangers of extrapolation last uh, last episode, but you know, extrapolating a little bit on the past with some good re- underlying reasoning for that expectation. Mm-hmm. Maybe just apply as simple as a net margin on that. So, well, Kogan yeah. uh, for every dollar in sales after tax, after everything said and done, it tends to spit yep. this out the other side. That tends to be about five percent. I'm not sure what it is off the top mm-hmm. of my head. Probably a bit better than that actually. Um, and apply that going forward, and you'll come up. You'll come up with a series of numbers. Now, is, are those numbers any good? Well, <laughs> therein lies the rub. But but that's a really really great place to start. And what I find that's really useful about it, I've said it before, is is that whatever you come up with is going to be wrong because you only need to make one small mistake and it sort of throws the whole thing out. But the the value in the exercise is it sort of gives you a bit of a Mm. mechanical understanding of the financials. You know, what are the big costs for this company? Is it mainly employees? Is it assets? What's the capital expenditure like? What are the assets? You know, these kinds, it it, it sort of forces you through it. And you get to, for what I've found, is that I I still come back to actually a very uh, intentionally general and somewhat vague mm. kind of estimate, but at least I've thought it through, and at least I can sort of justify why I think those things. Yeah, that's are, I put it. 
are going are going to go that way. Yeah. And it also gives me some very good signposts going forward as to well, what are the things I need to look. I said this thing was cheap at X dollars, but that was predicated right, on them right, achieving right. this kind of growth. Oh, they're clearly right. not delivering it. Maybe the thesis is broken. You know, it, it gives you things to look at other than the share price. And so, like uh, to, to answer, I've, I've kind of gone on a bit of a, a, a an arc here, but mm, mm. what I would say is. It's just a way to independently view, value yep. the company outside of the market. It's only going to be as good as the assumptions you make. You don't have to get hyper-specific. Make some fairly large, broad, longer-term, general um, uh, mm-hmm. assumptions and work back work backwards from there with what the numbers spit out and you'll, you'll get something that helps you draw a line in the sand. And then, and 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 just by doing that, well, I said just by doing that, it's quite it's quite a bit of work. Um, <laughs> you, you put yourself at such an advantage yeah. because now you've yeah. got something to. We're all going to anchor on something as our mm-hmm. behavioural predilections sort of dictate. But now yeah. it's something that's a bit more useful than the whims of a neurotic Mister Market. <laughs> yeah. Do you know? What? And, I like and that, that. And that, that no, it, it, it answers. Well, it's so fundamental because when you answer this yeah. question, it answers all the other hard questions with investing on the share market. <laughs> when do I buy? When do I sell? How much yeah. should I put into this company? It, yeah. it all stems really from from this value that you've mm. you've thought mm. independently that mm. this thing is worth, and that you're going to opportuni- opportunistically apply that knowledge against <laughs> against the market. Um, and this is why conviction comes. This is another tangent here. This is why conviction comes into it so much because evaluation is worthless if you're going to freak out the second sh- the market drops ten percent or something. So yeah. you've got to yeah. you've really got to work at it to sort of come up with a number that you know is never going to be right, but at least you've got it's got a very good rational basis to and that you can put some confidence into because of the set of assumptions there aren't in and of themselves a big stretch. And this is, you know, we could get into margin of safety and how you sort of pad out your valuations to account for these uncertainties. But it's just a it's yeah. it's well, there's the math side of things and you did a great job of outlining it, but there's also the ideological side of things. And it it all rests really essentially on the notion that eventually over time, the market will recognise the true value. And if, if you've independently thought that and recognised that before everyone else, therein, therein lies what they call the alpha, the outperformance. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. So look, from, from a Kogan perspective, here's the thing. You, you, if you believe that profit can grow meaningfully yearly from here out, uh, you've got to assume that might be a certain number. If you're doing the DCF, there's kind of cash flow, you put that in. So you go from 100 to 120 to 150 to 180 to 220 or something. Um, and you see how that expands and compounds over time. So the first thing is compounding that. Second is working out, as Andrew said, what that's worth to you, uh, discounting it by the value of some sort of you know indicative expected return or the Boffins use the weighted cost of capital, which I think is a terrible thing to use, but that's a whole different discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your, your expected return, most of us use 10-ish percent. Um, so, you know, $220 in a year's time is worth 200 bucks now, right? Not quite, but 10% less. In two years' time, 220 bucks is worth $180 today. In three years' time, 220 bucks is worth $160 today, roughly, um, because you expect a return of 10% per year. So you're waiting for three years. You're effectively losing three 10% compounded. Mm-hmm. Add all that up, and that gives you a total level of, as interested intrinsic value. If you've done that well enough, you have a sense of what the shares are roughly worth today. And roughly is a really important point, as Andrew says, um, what they're roughly worth today. And that's how the DCF kind of works its way out. Patrick, if you're looking for it, I don't, do you even know any really good DCF models? I was just about to say, it's, yeah. I did it for someone, um, one of the Strongman members recently. Honestly, just okay. Google it. You will find, there's yeah, like yeah. YouTube videos. And yeah, there's yeah, a nice. lot of, there's a, there's a, there's a, 
spectrum yeah. of quality that's out there. But, <laughs> you know, again, you, you'll yeah. get a really good um, handle j- just by having a basic search around. You, you, you really would. Yeah. I, I guess one thing that, that we that falls down in, and I guess the, the, the um, description we've given is at some mm. point you've got to account for a terminal rate because, yeah, well, think about that. it. I, I might only be adding <laughs> 0.1 of a cent each year, but if I add yeah. that for infinite years, that's, that's still exactly infinity, that's right? That's right. right. So, that's right. so there's, there's other ways. And again, the mass, once you get your head around, the mass isn't that simple. You, mm-hmm. You're just taking basically your your target return minus a, a terminal growth rate, whatever that percentage is, you divide that by the earnings at that end point. <laughs> and that gives you a figure that you add the other discount, the other cash flows to. Oh, God, what am I doing? I'm getting into the weeds. But it's- It was detailed, but, I, but no, you're right. That, you, that, you, that, you'll that's search it up, right. you'll find it. It's not, it's not, all my urging would be, would yep, be yep, yep. don't get too much into the weed. Don't get too yep. focused on, on your assumptions. Keep it broad, keep it mm-hmm. general. Treat it with respect. Tr- respect the process. More yes. than the exact That's answer. That's nice way to do it. And 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 I think you'll you'll be okay. Yeah. We just can't we just can't do the the prop proper justice to it in this format. We won't. Yes. But you will find. Fortunately, we don't have to. There's some really great stuff out there. I might even try and do a YouTube video on it at some point. It gets really difficult. You got to do some screen share stuff. But yeah, at some point it it might be worth doing. Uh, to Andrew's point, the lo- so so the longer you can grow for at, at abnormal rates, the more your business should be worth. And the that's that's almost that's almost kind of the only point, right, mate? Like it's you know if you can if you can grow at fifteen percent for two years and then and then two percent thereafter, you haven't got much excess growth. If you can grow it, I mean, I'll use Amazon, a company I own, has grown twenty percent per year effectively for the last twenty five years straight, mm. and the compound value of that gets you to a three thousand dollars share price, funnily enough, from three bucks. And so, you know, you know, if you if you're buying a, an income stream, if you're buying a, a dividend stock, and you know, you need to do the DCF, or you should, probably should anyway, because if you're not getting any growth from it, the cash flow stream really, really matters to how much you pay. Mm. But if you can get a, if you can get a long-term market-beating compound growth machine, then that's all. That's almost the point. That's almost what the DCF is going to effectively show you: is the longer you can grow for, the more your business is worth. The longer you can grow for, frankly, the more likely it is the market's actually getting this wrong. And that may be one of the big lessons from DCFs generally: um, is people will do a DCF at five years. If you've done a DCF at five years for Amazon, at forty percent from ninety-seven to two thousand and two. And then you assume that it's going to grow at normal rates thereafter. That's actually where the opportunity is. And that's why we're long-term investors, right? Because the compound value of that years 6 to 10 to 15 to 20, that's where the real value is for the mm. investor who can look out further than that. And I guess the risk with DCFs, just to round this off, mate, is is if you follow it too closely, you may end up missing most of those high compounders because the traps, the behavioral biases that come into, well, they can't possibly assume it's going to grow at that rate for that long, so you don't. Or I'm only going to do it for five years. And so you exclude the ex, the, the long term growth. Um, that's that's one of the interesting. That is that's worth. Sorry to interrupt. That, that, I was going to no. say that that's one of the really fascinating things that emerge from the maths when you do start playing around with it is just how much value can be in the tail, uh, as they say. Um, which which is why you have what seem to be obscene valuations for certain growth companies. And I mean, we've talked before about how ludicrous Facebook seemed at its IPO. But again, the, these tales can be very long and very wide, and 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 that's what a lot of people miss. Um, the, the other thing I was going to say in terms of DCF is, is to borrow a leaf from Charlie Munger's book in the, in, with this idea of inverting an, 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 a problem, which is you can say, well, what's the current market price now? What does that say about the market's expectation for growth. This comes back to the, the crux of the argument I had against Afterpay when it was up 150 bucks, which is, well, 
okay, let's assume that's fair. What kind of growth do I need to see? And you can just start playing around with numbers to see what sort of fits the curve, so to speak, that actually says that this is a fair price. And what you find from exercises mm. like that is, is like, oh, absolutely, it's possible. Mm. But of all the possible futures, there's a mm. there's a minority that end up <laughs> uh, yeah, aligned with right. the curve, and and then that's anything right, short right. of that, you know, so you can you can you can sort of do what they say a reverse DCF and just say, well, what growth is yes. being inferred by I, the market? Yeah, yeah, and then and then do I think that's reasonable? And it does yes. it doesn't have to actually be much more complicated than that. If it comes back to let's use your favorite example, Kogan. It's just, <laughs> I, don't, I haven't I haven't done the absolutely. maths, but maybe it's yeah. a look. The market price at this point in time is inferring that this thing can only sort of grow at 3 or 4% for 10 years and then a terminal rate. And if your view yep. is, oh, I think it can do more, you, you know what I mean? You don't, you don't actually That's have exactly to go right the down the, the mathematical spreadsheet route to sort of uh, – there's, there's a perfectly cogent argument for value. Again, it, it rests on the, on the validity of the, the, the assumptions, but it, it's sound. It's, it's intellectually sound. Couldn't agree more. Let's move on. Uh, but, yeah, Patrick, good, good question. Uh, it's really, really important to understand the concept of a DCF. And then once you understand it, I would almost automatically just leave it behind <laughs> as a tool. Um, for those reasons that Andrew said and the psychological biases that I talked about, um, learning how it works is really, really valuable because you get a sense of when the market might be missing a trick with that long-term growth. But if you start to fall tr- prey to its um, uh, seeming specificity and the ability to put a five-year growth target in that everyone, everyone puts in a growth target, it's 20% for the first year, and then you kind of feel compelled to then reduce it after that. Uh, let's call it 17% for the year after that, then 15%, then 10, then five, then two. Okay, that sounds about right. Yeah, you know, again, you miss the Amazons, you miss the Googles, you miss the Facebooks, you miss the whatevers because um, the assumptions are garbage in, garbage out, as they say, and it, it can actually lead you astray rather than actually informing you. But once you get there, a reverse DCF where you get to simply say, if I find a company where the DCF suggests X and I think I think you can do X plus something else, then you've probably got a decent yeah. investment opportunity. I, for what's worth, that exactly what I think is the case of Kogan. I think the market is absolutely missing the the the, the years four through ten right mm. growth out of, out of a business like this. It's already grown revenues at thirty percent a year, top line. Maybe it goes to twenty. Maybe it goes to fifteen. If you compound that for any length of time, or if it doesn't go to those numbers and stays higher, um, then it, it gets pretty cheap pretty quickly. Yep. All right. Let's get a question from Lucas. <laughs> I, I, I like Lucas's message for a whole different, lot of different reasons. Let's go with it. He says, "Thanks for another question answered from Lord Scott and from the Sage." I'm a massive Star Trek fan, by the way. The Borg references don't go missed. Thank you, Lucas. I appreciate it, mate. Some fellow. Oh, by the way, got a lot of um, hashtag Star Trek, hashtag Star Wars responses during the week. I do actually think Star Trek won. I think uh, it did. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll see how we go. It was pretty close. All right. A quick question for the pot again. With ETFs like SYI, which is a particular ETF I'll get to, which is on Comsec Pocket, it's targeted at, and this is what it is called, sustainable high dividend yields, which are paid quarterly. Approximately 4 to 5 percent-ish. Could this be a better alternative than the ASX 200 from a compounding effect point of view? I'm fully aware that capital growth is lower than the ASX 200 though. There's approximately 30 companies in the SYI ETF. I would appreciate your thoughts, and that's from Lucas. Um, so Comsec Pocket, I just really like it. Um, people getting started, really, really cool, super cheap brokerage, simple, easy way to do it. They offer, I think, seven ETFs. If you're getting going, great way to do it. I don't think you should stop there necessarily, but it's a good way to start. This is the MSCI, it's, some by, um, it's a spider ETF, MSCI Australia Select High Dividend Yield ETF. And the question is, hey, with the, with the dividend yield that high, isn't it likely to do better than the ASX 200? Your thoughts, Ram? 
Uh, potentially, um, only if you. Uh, it, well, you know, as always, it depends. Um, yeah. re- reinvesting of those dividends, you would yeah. you would need to do, and the compounding therein does actually give it a very fighting chance to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, as always, there's a compromise with mm. with high yielding stock. The reason that they're paying such good dividends, frankly, is because management mm. don't don't want to do off the cash. They don't they don't <laughs> yeah, have the growth right. opportunity. That, that's why yeah, you pay a yeah, dividend. Yeah, if a yeah. company's got yeah. opportunities in front of it where it could earn a 20, 30% return, like yeah. keep the bloody cash, right? Yeah, um, right. And that that's where the real the real wealth uh, winners are on yeah. on on the ASX. Yeah. Um, so so what you when you have companies that, that have ostensibly high yields, mm. it, it's sort of like they're attractive for people that are after the regular income and the rest. But yep. generally, so this is a generalization. I know there'll be exceptions, but generally <laughs> speaking, uh, mm. as I understand it, even with the compounding, it will tend to be a little bit low because you will miss out on the hypergrowth stocks. We know that from yeah. from uh, indices and the rest of it that it's a very small number of stocks that do the heavy lifting. Yeah. So if you go back over the last five years and take out, uh, I don't know what's the you know take take out Fortescue Metals over the last yeah. ten years yeah, or something right. like that. It, it just yeah. even though there's five hundred stocks in the all odds, that's that's still going to have a material difference. Mm. Um, so look, I, I would I would make your decision based on your desired mm. return mm. Um, if you're not in a stage where you need the income uh, even though there are those compounding benefits and the rest of it I think you're actually better to, to ensure you're exposed to a bit more growth because yeah. I think over longer periods of time even though a lot of those growth ambitions won't won't turn out to be fruitful um, you might you might end up being slightly worse if on the other hand you're, you're, you're it's very desirable for you to get a regular highly high yield yes. income and you give up on a bit of longer term growth for that then that's absolutely the best choice so it depends great yeah great question great point um, I, yeah I did have a look the capital value of the high yield ETFs only grown by six percent over five years that's not six percent per year that's six percent in total okay over five years the a6200 is up 33 percent mm. now you can assume those high yielding stocks perform better, and that's probably true in terms of dividend than the average ASX. But the ASX includes those thirty companies, so it's not we're not even comparing with and without. We're comparing both or with, right? So mm. the the high yield ETF has got um, that amount of money in it, which is great. Um, that the dividend yield, which is wonderful, but the, so the ASX two hundred has got those thirty companies as well, and it's still massively upformed on a capital growth perspective. Remarkably unlikely that dividends make up the difference, even if it's close then there's no difference. <laughs> it's very unlikely to be more. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you're right, Andrew. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ETF for those who want the income or frankly who are just, and I don't blame people, just scared about investing in stocks and, and want to see some sort of cash flow to make themselves feel a bit better about investing. If you need that because you need that because you need that, then go for it. And I wouldn't I'll- do it. I wouldn't choose it, but if you feel like you have to because it's the only way you can kind of invest with any confidence, then I get it. But no, I, I, would, I would absolutely... I love dividends. They're wonderful. There's nothing better than feeling them hit your, your bank account. It's just really, really cool. I got my Australian ethical dividends the other day and I was like, oh, that's awesome. Um, so, you know, I, we all get it, but I would I would absolutely stick with, I, I wouldn't necessarily even go the ASX 200, but given the choice of those two, I'd absolutely go the ASX 200. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. Nothing to add. Beautiful. Let's go to John. Um, hi, Scott. I'd like to throw out a question for the pod. Excellent. Thank you. My Australian portfolio has grown to include 10 ETFs and 19 individual companies. But I want to start concentrating my portfolio. Where do I start? I'm having trouble letting go, says John, which I absolutely get because endowment effect's huge right around. Like yeah. you think, it's like, you know, which one of these do I sell? Oh man, the one I sell, that's the one that's going to go up, right? I don't want to miss the opportunity when it goes up and now I already own it. So if I sell it, I'm, I'm taking that risk. And if there's anything worse than missing out 
on someone else's growth, it's the only time that then goes up. You're like, oh my no, God, I'm so I can't believe I did mm. that. Um, and it happens all the time, by the way. So all the first the thing time. is get used to it. But um, what would you say to John, mate? 10 ETFs, 19 companies. He wants to concentrate a bit more. Where does he start? Yeah, I think he's right to want to concentrate. I mean, diversification is great. That's a lot of diversification. Um, yep. It also depends too on what the balance is between the, the ETFs and the individual companies. Yeah. So maybe it's 80% in one and 20% terms, yeah. in the other yep. basket. So yep. that, that also depends. But I... I, I I basically, this is where I, I always come back to this, but I think this is where the value is in having some form of an investment diary and stuff. I've, mm-hmm. I have a bit of a page on each company, why I like it, what I think it's worth, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and just, and rank them, rank them. Yep. And and some will be hard to, you know, is this one number three or is this one number four? You know, it's, it, it can be tricky, <laughs> but you'll still yeah. find that there are some that you far prefer. And I think yeah. there's a really lot to be said for concentrating your capital in your best ideas because they mm-hmm. genuinely high conviction, high quality ideas actually pretty rare. So I don't mm-hmm. think you don't you never you can even on those you can easily be wrong. So you don't you don't over concentrate too much. But I do think that that you should concentrate more on those and be mm-hmm. comfortable with with a proportionally higher weighting in those stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what's going to give you the outperformance if, if, <laughs> if you get it right. I mean, you just, it, it, it's, it's, again, it's a spectrum. You don't, you don't want to put 50% into one, but I think, you're going to, I think you can very plausibly, sensibly concentrate yourself there without really adding much risk at all. Yes, I think that's a good point, mate. I, so I, I, this is really hard. It depends. We also, by the way, can't tell you what you should do. So in terms of, we say regularly, but I'll say again, probably once a podcast or so, we can't give you a personal financial advice, John, so I can't tell you what you should do. Um, it's possible the 10 ETFs aren't a problem. It's possible they are a problem. Um, if, for example, I owned an ASX 200 ETF, an ASX 300 ETF, another ASX 200 ETF, just because I had three of them, I could have three times as much money in one of them or money in all three of them, it would make no difference. Mm. So ironically, in this case, the, the amount of overlap here doesn't actually make the diversification better or worse. It just simply makes it more. <laughs> so these have got more, you know, they're the same dollars in, in more different options. Now, if I've got an ETF, which is an Asian ETF and one that's a US ETF, one's an Australian ETF, then that's a very different story. So again, uh, you know, if you gave more information, we could tell you what you should do. Uh, but what's in those ETFs and then even what's in the individual companies makes a huge difference. If your individual companies are BHP, Rio, Fortescue, Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, ANZ, NAB, News Corp, Telstra, Woolies, Goals, West Farmers, well, you've probably got, you know, <laughs> that's kind of the ASX 20 or 50 already, right? Um, mm. So it really, really, really does matter. Um, I have I have zero problem with having this many stocks, by the way. I, I'll take a slightly different answer to Andrew, which is just, if you if you, you want to concentrate, that's great. Just make sure you're actually, I'll say this nicely, make sure you're good enough to actually choose to concentrate. If you're a good stock picker, then concentration makes a whole lot of sense. Buffett would say, you put all your eggs in one basket, watch that basket really closely. For other people, he says about his estate and for his wife, Hey, 90% of the money goes in that S&P 500 ETF. So, you know, it, 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 once you know you're good at stock picking, you have the, the mentality, the, the emotional stability, the just, you know, you can sleep at night doing it, then you can start to concentrate. So first thing is don't concentrate if you're not the sort of person who should or can. Um, if you don't have the skill or, or the, the kind of, you know, internal fortitude to go with it, then don't. Um, next thing is, if you're, yeah, I think it, it, having 29 individual in positions is about as many as I would probably want unless you're getting individual advice on those as individual portfolios. For example, the Motley Fool's got you know, different 20-stock portfolios and we're looking after those. If you're following us, then we're going to keep an eye on it. Individually, if you're not doing this as a full-time job, trying to keep track of 30 positions is tough, right? Like especially mm. during earnings season. Um, really, really difficult to kind of keep your head around what's actually going on. If you're going to, diverse, if you're going to start breaking back, think about the companies you have just least confidence in. Um, you know, which of those 19 companies, what are, the, what are the three or four 
that you simply don't feel as good about the other as the other not feeling. Can I can I just quickly jump in Please, there? Yeah. When making yeah. that appraisal that you're speaking about, don't make it based on whether say. you're you're sorry, I beat <laughs> yeah. you to it. No, but, I was gonna say it, I'm glad you knew it. Soon as I was like, oh I know he's gonna go with that's yeah, great. No, thank well, you. Don't jump in. The the stock that might be down the most might actually be the best stock to own. Correct. Uh, yes, it's not performed well to date, but that's that's you, you can make some really bad decisions on on that basis. So sorry, continue. Yep. No, mate, I'm glad you said it. So yeah, and that's why I said the most conviction, not the one that's doing the best, right? Mm. So um, yes, you've got to be able to. This is a, again the point about concentrating, right? If you if you're not kind of you don't feel really confident as an investor, don't do it yet. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the ones that the, the, the four or five you sell might be the best performers or the worst performers or everything in between. You look now at the share price and say, do I I own Woolly shares? Do I think Woolies are in my top fifteen ideas? For, for gains from this point forward. Doesn't matter whether I'm up or down 20%. From this point forward, I think, are they in my top 50? If they are, keep them. If not, then they might be on your list of, of things to cull. So think about that. And I'll do the same with the ETFs, but also with the ETFs, think about you know where the overlap is. As I said, if you own a, an S&P 500 ETF and a NASDAQ ETF and a global ETF, there's a very, very good chance that you know effectively you're, you're, triple, you're tripling down on, on a couple of those. NASDAQ is a large part, maybe even most of the S&P 500 these days. The S&P 500 is the largest part of the global, a global ETF. So again, think about, well, do you want to have just a NASDAQ or S&P? Or if you own a global ETF and that's enough, do you really want the other two? So that's an easy way to start cutting down. Um, I, I, yeah, look, I, I'll finish this by saying I don't think you need to. So just, just don't, don't feel the urge to somehow say a number is a number is a number. And so therefore we're going to, I need to reduce them for the sake of it. If you're happy with what you've got, then that's completely fine. But if you think there's better ideas out there, you either want to concentrate into your better ideas, you've got 10 ETFs, but you really feel great about five of them, you don't really love the other five, then for sure. But also make sure you're keeping diversified and make sure what you end up with isn't, you know, again, if I, if I owned a banking ETF plus the ASX 20 plus Westpac, well, you, you know, you're not super diversified. So be careful you don't end up concentrating in unintended ways, which is I've got an ETF and I've got a banking ETF and I've got, um, you know, I've got, I've got Westpac, therefore I'm diversified. Just just remember that they are, you know, it's kind of a triple weighting in the same thing. So just think about how your portfolio would look from an underlying perspective in terms of what you own after you finish that concentration process. Is that fair? Yep, totally. All right, one from David. Hi guys, and thank you for your entertaining and informative podcast each week. I enjoy them immensely. Thank you, David. I followed your conversations and answers to questions over the past and have managed to set up a very small portfolio of NASDAQ the Asian ETF and the Vanguard Australian ETF for my three gorgeous granddaughters through my online broker. That's just really, really cool, David. Well done. Um, love, love the love that comes through there, mate. That's very cool too. Scott, I really enjoy both you and Ram talking about companies and how they may look in five, 10 or 20 years. In a Western world where governments are so reactionary and struggle to see beyond the next election, it's no surprise to me that China, which isn't hamstrung by such democratic restraints, has become such an economic powerhouse and hence a threat to Western societies. I really enjoy the conversations of long-term planning. It truly is a breath of fresh air in these reactionary times. Thanks, mate. I've got a question for the mailbag, says David. I was wondering if there were any ETFs on the ASX that cover Latin or South America. I've searched without much success. I know there are a couple in the US that have performed quite well, but I don't really want to invest over there directly and would prefer an Aussie ETF if possible. I've traveled there and love the place, so I thought a little bit of it in my granddaughter's portfolios may expand their horizons one day in the future when travel is a reality. Thank you in anticipation and full on, and that's from David. What do you got for us, mate? I'm not familiar with an ETF, but that doesn't mean it's not out there. Um, uh, I, 
I agree. It's a beautiful part of the world. I don't know if it's got the best uh, financial history uh, mm-hmm. record. Um, I, I would probably again. I'm not an expert in this, but I mm-hmm. I, I think it's a pretty high risk <laughs> uh, area to invest in. Um, and yeah, but if you're if you're doing it more for other reasons that are not purely financial, I get I get that as well. So yeah. I, I don't know, man. It's really outside of my wheelhouse investing in, in emerging markets. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, um, I no, I'm not aware of any, and I think it's one of those situations with David. I, I don't mind the question. I I would just and this is you talk about some of the other ETFs. I would I would go towards a Vanguard Global ETF if I was going to do something like that. If I wanted to do something like that, we can't see what you should do, David. Um, but if I was, and look, here's, here's the thing. If I, if I built a portfolio and said, okay, I want to have, I don't know, let's call it 50, 60% uh, global, oh, sorry, US, and maybe 20% Australian, and maybe 20% European, and maybe 10% Latin America. If you buy the global ETF, you're kind of getting that anyway. <laughs> so to some degree, you've, because you've already got the other ETFs you talk about, um, the global ETF already does that in, in proportional terms. Now, unless you wanted a greater proportion of Latin America for either you know family reasons or for, for potential financial reasons, you might just like the idea and you might think it's going to go gangbusters, then yeah, you absolutely could do something like that. You could try and find direct exposure. I would happily, if it was me, um, just just take the take the exposure that the market itself represents by grabbing a global ETF. The, the Vanguard global ETF is VGS is the code. I own units for the record. Not that that's going to change anything because they're not relying on my view otherwise. It's literally the global market. And uh, trust me when I say that global... Uh, global fund managers aren't listening to me uh, on this podcast and make, changing their South American exposure. So, But I still should disclose it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, VGS is the one I, I would go with because it has a small proportion of Latin America, which is probably about what you'd want in your portfolio in a, in a proportional sense. Um, not as exciting as having something specific you can point to and say that ETF is South America and therefore, you know, let me tell you about when I went there and, and this is why I think you should own it and I hope it broadens your horizons. But you could do the same with that ETF and say, hey, girls, Here's the thing. This ETF is 60% America and it's 20% Europe and it's whatever it is, you know, 20% Asia and 10% South America. It's not going to be those numbers, but you get the broad idea. Partly, mate, because I don't add up to 100% as it turns out. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, you get, the, you get the broad idea. So look, no, no, I don't know any that are specific. I don't think you need to. I think you can buy a global ETF and have the same approach um, as you're looking for uh, by owning some of those component parts. I think that's probably how I'd go about it, but that's just, that's just me. Can you think of any big... Latin American companies, there's... Um... I can. So I own one called Mercado Libre. Oh, right. Um, which actually, well, and this is the other thing, it's US listed, right? And so this is where, you know, the, the question, David, about, you know, owning Latin American companies versus companies who do business in Latin America are a bit different. It's like, you know, if you think about mm. China, um, some of the biggest companies doing business in China are, by the way, General Motors and, you know, Google. No, not Google. Not, you know, but those sort of businesses that are doing business over there already. Uh, KFC is massive in China, mm. as it turns out. Now, are they, you know, are they bigger than the other chicken makers there? Probably they are, actually, yeah, because they're a national chain. But Mercado Libre is an Amazon slash PayPal of, of Latin America. Okay. Uh, really cool business. Uh, really expensive on, a, on traditional metrics. So if you're looking for a, a value play, you're not going to buy Mercado Libre. Uh, but I like the business. It's a it's a um, doing a really good job of, of growing nicely. Its results are volatile because it reports in US dollars. But of course, we know currencies swing all over the place and you kind of allude to that, Ram. Uh, but Mercado Libre is one way you can play that. I, I bought it specifically because it's doing a really good job and I think Latin America will keep growing. Uh, I don't necessarily want to invest in a Latin American oil company or Latin American car manufacturers, but I'm happy to happy to invest in a Latin American e-commerce. Vale is the other one I can think of. And Brazil, you're right. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. A big, big iron ore miner. Mm, mm, you're right. 
so yeah, that, that's probably how I think about it, David. Again, though, remember I said in in this world, stuff that's listed on Exchange X, Atlassian is an Australian company listed on the US markets. That's um, a KFC. I think they actually do more business in China than America. That might be stretching it, but it's, it's like they're really, really big. GM, similar General Motors, similar kind of scenario, massive amounts of, of business in China. So you know, do you need to buy Chinese companies to get exposure to China? Probably not. Um, do you need to buy Latin American listed companies to get exposure to Latin America? I would say probably not. Um, so grab, grabbing some of those ETFs might make some sense. They may not, but to see how that goes for you. Just for the record, mate, on that, I was just yeah. you made me think that all of the, my, I think a good deal of my largest holdings are all ASX companies, but I think right. most of them get their money overseas. <laughs> most of their money yeah, overseas. Right. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and, that's, and that's where, you know, in the olden days, a big tangent, but there's a thing called the Buffett ratio, which is when Buffett compared the S&P 500 level to global GDP. Mm. And when it got over a certain amount of money, that's, that suggested that, American GDP, sorry, it suggested the American market was too expensive because obviously, you know, the, the American stock market was with X if it was much, much more than GDP in terms of growth from some arbitrary point, then the Buffett ratio said the stocks were overvalued. Um, that made a whole lot of sense when American companies mostly did business in America. But these days, think about them, Google, Facebook, mm. Amazon, Netflix. Um, I own some of those. Spotify, yeah, name. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah. Spotify, General mm. Motors, General Electric, um, Nike, uh, Pinterest, uh, I mean, uh, tr- trillions of them, right? Some, some Bank of America, probably just in America. You know, um, uh, some, some of the American fast food joints that aren't here, probably just America. But last I checked, and this is now an old, really old stat, mate, but something like 40% of the S&P 500 revenue came from outside the USA. Yeah, it's huge. And so again, you know, if, if you're buying American companies, you're kind of buying American-based companies, you're buying American-listed companies, but almost half of the revenue actually comes from overseas. So um, if Latin America makes sense, again, so if Latin America makes sense, because you get to say to the girls, this is in Latin America, let me tell you about Latin America. Let me tell you about your travels. I hope you go there someday. Then that's its own that's its own thing. But investing-wise, I think you could happily buy a global ETF and get lots of lots of opportunity. I'm going to time for one more question, mate. Before I do, I'm going to change it up and do our socials early. So if you mm-hmm. want to follow us, on any of the socials, we hope you do because that's where you get questions. We get to interact with you. Um, Andrew is only on tw- exclusively on Twitter. Twitter are paying him a lot of money. I'm not being work. active oh, enough. Two apologies. I'll, I'll well, tweet you got to get back on. You were, you were tagged this week, mate. So just check that um, by one of our listeners. Oh, cool. Um, if you are doing so, jump on Sage underscore Simeon is Andrew's personal Twitter account or Strawman Invest. If you're on Twitter or Instagram, you can get me at TMF Scott P. Or The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. If you're on Facebook, jump on to facebook.com slash scottphillipsmoney or facebook.com slash The Motley Fool Australia. Check out The Good Oil Podcast and check out our YouTube channel, which is just The Motley Fool Australia. Go to strawman.com too. I hear it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, last question, mate, from Dan. Hi, Scott and Andrew. I'm a long-time listener, first-time writer. I'm currently a member of Extreme Opportunities and a premium member of Strawman. Good man. I very much enjoy the podcast and the above services. I've got a quick question for you both. I know there is a saying, there is never, a, there's not such a thing as free money on the stock market, but I'm not sure if I'm missing something. I'm a shareholder of a company called Big Tin Can, a favourite of Extreme Opportunities and a previous host of the show, Doc. Recently, Big Tin Can acquired BrainShark and in doing so, paid for it using a share purchase plan and other placements. Upon this announcement, the share price raced from $1.05 to $1.40. But the share price, share purchase plan was offered at $1.05, nearly a 33% discount. Am I missing something? Or is this about as close to free money as there is on the stock market? Keep up the good work and full on. And that's from Dan. So, yeah, mate, this was a, this was a story. So, $1.05, they announce a deal. The shares go $1.40. 
And BT can say, no, nah, we're going to raise money just at the old dollar five price. And he's looking at that going, so I can buy shares for dollar five that are currently listed selling for dollar forty. That feels like a free thirty-five cents to me. What am I missing? Is he missing something? No, potentially not. I'm not. I'm not familiar with the details of the deal, so uh, I, it may have been already locked in. Up, you know, so you can't just change your mind, or maybe you can. I don't know what the legals yeah. are around that. Right, right, right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it depends. As, as quickly as it's gone from a dollar to a dollar forty, it could go back to fifty cents tomorrow as well. Yeah. So there's there's also, and I'm not not for a second am I suggesting that's <laughs> going to happen. As I say, I'm not familiar with yeah. the, the the deal, and not overly that familiar with the company overall, actually. So, right. um, but yeah, it it seems like uh, it makes it it makes it very likely to be oversubscribed that uh, mm-hmm. share purchase plan because <laughs> it seems like a pretty big deal. Why not buy it at a dollar and, and then flip it on the market if the share price is still up there? Yeah. It, it, it seems like you might actually be leaving money on the table, though, but uh, bear that in mind, too. So it looks like a, a, a free lunch and, and maybe it is, but maybe there's a, yep. a banquet <laughs> five years down the, <laughs> down the road where you're looking at the price at $7.20 thinking, oh, right, man, right, I thought I was right. so clever. And again, I'm not suggesting this is, this is the case. I'm not familiar with it. But yep. um, that, again, we, we, all, we always come full circle, don't we? It, it, it comes okay. back to it what depends. you think uh, the money is, is going to be used for, or how that yep. translates into business earnings, all of that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I would, yep. I would be... V- very unlikely not to take up that offer. I would say that much. Yep, nice. Um, so, yeah, I think a couple of things here, Dan. First is that, as Andrew's already said, we're assuming the market's right, saying it's worth $1.40. If you put your $1.05 down now, by the time you get those shares, maybe they're $1.40, maybe they're $1.50, maybe they're $7.20, as Ram says, or maybe they're $0.50. Cents. So versus the current price, absolutely. If you've got the choice of buying at the current price at $1.05 or $1.40, you take the $1.05. That makes perfect sense. Second thing is... Here's the bit where it's not quite free. They are adding shares to the share registry. They're increasing the share count at $1.05. If the shares are actually worth $1.40 now, then the company itself is getting less than it should be able to raise. In other words, it's raising too cheaply. And if you're a current shareholder, you're actually getting diluted by that because other people are doing the same thing. So when they're raising capital at $1.05, by the way, institutional placement is massive. So while you might be happy with the $1.05 you might get to buy for, if other institutions who weren't previously shareholders get to buy in a dollar five, then you say to yourself, "Well, hang on, they're, they're getting they're getting a better deal than I am, and it's costing my current shares are worth less." In other words, if the company raised the same amount of money at a higher price, there'd be less dilution. So you're paying for that ability if you're a current shareholder by getting diluted further than otherwise might have been the case. And you've always got to remember that because they could have raised much or other 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 more money at the current price or less money at a higher price. And diluted you less. So yes, I get to buy now. I get to buy an extra piece of pizza for a dollar five, when my last pizza cost me a dollar forty. Sure, but everyone else gets to do that as well. And so my piece that was now I bought for a dollar forty is all of a sudden worth a whole lot less because it's a whole lot smaller than it might have been. That the share of the business you now own in your existing shareholding is much less. And I don't know, mate. I would I would take the opportunity for the what looks like a free lunch and it is you pay $1.05 and you can sell for $1.40 by the way it's $1.36 at the moment but it could be anything then yeah you, you get a, you get an absolute amount of free money but the shares you already own are worth less as a result of this than they would otherwise be yeah. and management don't when they, launch, when they launch the capital raise they didn't know I'm sure they look yes. back in hindsight now and go oh yeah, bugger that's right. are you kidding me you know yeah, they, they, yeah, and yeah, I, I, I don't think they can go back <laughs> on, right. on that offer uh, no, unfortunately but that's, no. that's, that's a very good signal that um, in and of itself again looking just in isolation here but the fact that it has it has <laughs> yeah. been um, 
so well subscribed for and the share price. So you've got now got more shares on issue and at a significantly higher price. Yep. Overall, the market is saying, if you boil it all down, the market is saying this is a great transaction. The business is now worth a hell of a lot more, uh, even accounting for the extra shares. So that's that's a really good point. That, yeah, that's that's, that's, that's what the market is yeah. saying. And, and and does that mean retrospectively they could have raised at a better price? Yeah, probably does. <laughs> um, and as I say, look, I, I, I would... I think almost everyone who has an entitlement will take it up because yeah. there's a good... Now, maybe if everyone rushes to sell as soon as the shares get issued, <laughs> that, 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 that might have a bit of an effect as well. But yeah, I- And almost certainly will, I think, if, if that is the case. And, you know, it's, uh, fundies don't uh, often uh, look a gift horse in the mouth. If they get that, that free profit, they're going to well, lock that in for the current quarter, right? So right. you may also see some meaningful selling at that point. Yeah, which is what, which is again why it comes back to where you look at this yeah. is you stand back yeah. and you go, wait a second, this company that I know <laughs> yeah, was right. doing this, they've now raised all this extra money, they've added these new shares, and they've now got this extra business. What does what does that look like going? And again, so you just just rebase your thing, and that, and that that again, as always, that will that will do a, an an inordinate amount mm. of um, informing mm. for you. There you go. Hope you like that. That's it for this week's podcast, mate. In the meantime, we will be back next Friday with another episode of Motley Fool, mate. So make sure you do subscribe to the podcast. I haven't asked this for a while, so please do give us a rating. Leave us a review if you would be so kind. If you're enjoying the podcast, as I said before, helps other people find it. It also helps them if they're looking through and looking for something to listen to. Uh, well, the more stars, the more likely they are to have a listen. So if you're enjoying it, please do us a favour if you wouldn't mind and, and also like that podcast. In the meantime, because I've already given the socials, all's left for me to say is full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.